welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is The Mask of the Public Good on how universities are gentrifying, homogenizing tax shelters. Or, as one citizen said of Princeton University, they're hedge funds that conduct classes. All of our music today comes from the 1981 album Live at the Checkerboard Lounge, which captured a visit by the Rolling Stones to a Muddy Waters concert at the famous venue in the Bronzeville neighborhood of Chicago's South Side. Our opening song is Champagne and Reefer. Well, you know an album lonely. The Checkerboard Lounge permanently closed its doors in 2015, but these doors were not those of the storied Blues Shrine that had stood on 43rd Street since 1972. The demise of this cultural mainstay opens Devarian Baldwin's new book, In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities. In 2003, the University of Chicago put together a plan to save what had become a dilapidated building by relocating the lounge from its original spot to a university-owned property inside the Hyde Park neighborhood's Harper Court shopping district. As Baldwin writes, this outraged restoration advocates who charged the university with cultural piracy. The university claimed it was an act of historic preservation. Well, you're not good for your hair. How universities make financial moves via their real estate offices is a major part of Baldwin's book, yet it's only one among many tactics of plunder employed by these seemingly community-minded and benign entities that are nestled innocuously within city limits, but yet not at all beholden to the so-called will of the people. From property management and police forces to research and development deals and labor exploitation, the university is a prime example of an engine of capital accumulation at the expense of community resources. Many examples are offered in the conversation that follows. Devarian Baldwin is a professor of American studies at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, an urbanist, historian, and cultural critic whose work examines universities and urban development the racial foundations of academic thought, intellectual and mass culture, black radical thought, and transnational social movements. Along with In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, published by Bold Type Books, he's the author of Chicago's New Negroes, Modernity, the Great Migration, and Black Urban Life. Sure have to smoke a little dope. <laughs> and now, The Mask of the Public Good on Interchange on WFHB. Ah, well, I'm lonely, baby. Set my woman down here by my side. Before we get into specifics, Devarian, uh, if you don't mind, let's try to take a, I guess, a holistic view of the university or a, a definitional view, perhaps, right? Uh, mm. You write about both private and public universities. Uh, what's the difference, really? You know, how, do we, how do we deal with them as different entities? Yeah, I mean, the biggest difference, I guess, is the expectation that 
because public universities were chartered with the intent, with the explicit intent of serving the state in which they're located, um, there is an expectation that they actually do that. Um, but the irony is that private universities also have charters with the state. They exist because of their charter with the state. And so they also have um, some, maybe perhaps less, but still some expectation of, of providing a public good. You know, they, they both have responsibilities, but I think it's more so with the expectation that public universities do more do better. In general, when we say private and public here, we are talking about um, at least initially like a funding base first, right? So a public public university gets public funding from the state, a private university does not. That's somewhat true. Um, (laughs) Private universities also receive money from the state and and the federal government, but less. The, the, The parity between how much they receive is actually getting closer and closer. Public schools still receive more. But if you look at public universities, at one point in time, their standard operating budget was co- was about 60% was covered by the state. That's been decimated in the last couple of decades, gone down to between, you know, sometimes 20 or I know in the case of uh, Indiana University, I think it's at 18% mm-hmm. of a state contribution. Private universities do receive money from the state, either through direct, uh, you know, cash offerings or through land holdings. But it's to a less degree, and it's expected that they would they they run primarily on uh, donations, investments, and non-state expenditures. Uh, as you just noted, Indiana University here in Bloomington gets the the bulk of its funding not from the state, um, mm-hmm. from uh, uh, corporate sponsorships, corporate investments, uh, things of that nature. Uh, you know, I don't know how to characterize a lot of these uh, deals in a lot of ways, right? So you get a particular department or program named after a business, or you know, a, a foundation has does most mm-hmm. of this work as well. We tend to um, see these things uh, in that in the way we do like sports arenas, really, right? They just get mm-hmm. renamed and named again by their right. corporate sponsors, so, so right? Naming rights, sponsors, yeah, right. public benefactors, right. investment projects. Um, be, you know, largely as we just spoke about, we just discussed because of the shrinking contributions of the state to public and private universities, uh, schools have had to figure out ways to be more entrepreneurial, finding out ways to generate revenue, capital. Um, wealth in a range of other ways. And because of that, largely, but not singularly, but largely, um, right before our eyes, colleges and universities have become the biggest employers, real estate owners, healthcare providers, and even policing agents in major cities and college towns all across the country. And so this is a combination of converting cities and towns into campuses um, in ways that can better manage and extract wealth from a range of services and areas and avenues where universities and colleges previously did not have to tread. And then the policing becomes an additional overlay upon which to manage and um, organize and police these arrangements. Right. And so what we have primarily seen as uh, educational institutions are big business. <laughs> You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is DeVarian Baldwin, professor of American Studies at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, and author of In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities, a book which exposes the myth of the university as a public good by revealing how much of its operations actually serve private and corporate wealth accumulation to the detriment of their host communities. 
I tried to get my head around it recently, and I thought about this. It's, it's in a kind of uh, like apocalyptic, dystopian way. Like uh, in my in my imagining, uh, through the various jobs I've had over my life, um, you know, I travel around to different uh, states and campuses and things like that. And in my head, I've got this like uh, uh, you know dystopian view and a, and a kind of Hunger Games way of like uh, of how these elevated trains just travel from campus to campus, mm. right? And, mm-hmm. and and as I'm reading your book and I'm thinking about these things and and you're you're talking about how all these um, municipal services, you know, all these things that we associate with our city governments and state governments, you know, have been kind of sh- uh, pushed into these these sort of private spaces mm-hmm. called universities, which then become municipalities themselves or arms of a state function and have their mm-hmm. own governance, their own rules, their own, as you say, their own police force, et cetera, as if the cities and towns are becoming the university themselves and the city uh, becomes right. a service to the university who's mm. serving the university it's kind of like you know you see those pictures of dubai with right. you know all the the shanty town type things outside of dubai where mm-hmm. the bulk of the people live to to be exploited labor and it, you get that sense of what's happening like it's it, it's become visible now mm-hmm. that it's mm-hmm. happening in that in a way here that we could kind of sketch it in and say okay if if things go really badly the university has systems in place that are external to the city external to other uh, other other ways in which we do things and the university has the power and the political force and the the you know the armed force even mm-hmm. to support itself in dire times that's right so this this wonderfully captures you know what i've highlighted in my research is this period whereby higher education um, has taken a growing influence over the political governance and economic development of our cities and towns. And I call this the, the, the creation of the universe city. And we discussed earlier this article that laid out the relationship between IU and Bloomington in terms of taxes, should they be paying more taxes? And it was interesting. One of the administrators, you know, in a celebratory way, talked about you know, how IU was kind of a a self-sustainable independent entity. He described it as being a city within a city Mm -hmm. as a good thing. Right, right. Um, It's it's sustainable. It's independent. It takes care of its own facilities and services. Um, But that's always a a bit of a misnomer, i.e. that, you know, it it takes care of its own trash. It it does its own maintenance, uh, things of that nature. But that's 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 a very much a misnomer because I spent a summer in IU and um, and I, you know, with this work, I've done, you know, tons of research and spent time at universities all over the country. Mm -hmm. Even these schools that claim to be um, self-sustaining, they are directly and intimately connected to the cities and towns in which they sit in terms of labor, in terms of wealth extraction, um, in terms of public services. The public roads don't just stop at the campus borders. The electrical grid doesn't just stop at the campus borders. Most of the low-wage labor that takes place on campuses is not performed by students, but by primarily uh, working-class Black and brown people in the surrounding cities and primarily women, the low wage. So we think of universities as primarily being employees of of faculty, but it's really low wage workers in the food service staff and grounds crew and support staff in the various offices around the campus. And so this idea of a city within a city um, is not necessarily true because the prosperity and capacity of these universities is maintained by the residents that live in surrounding areas. And then you add the additional issue around taxation, which we can talk to talk about more detail in a minute. Mm-hmm. But the prosperity that these schools brag about in their endowments and in their wealth generation 
is not divorced from the fact that they don't pay into public services in the towns where the faculty and the and the off-campus students and their workers live. And so when they brag about their endowments or their wealth um, accruement, part of that is because they're not paying into what all other businesses have to pay into in terms of public services, the schools, the roads, trash removal, snow removal, um, all these things are not paid because of the tax exemption of universities because they're designated as 501c3 nonprofit entities. Hmm. Because there is less of a state um, contribution, the money they're not paying into now goes into for-profit making ventures. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that is rarely discussed when we're talking about higher education. It's time for a break. This is Long Distance Call. Another track from Live at the Checkerboard Lounge. Stay with us for more on the ways universities plunder our towns and cities. Set to love me, baby. Please call on the phone sometime. Set to love me, baby. On the phone sometimes. When I hear your voice, you know it is my worry mind. One of these days. Show you how nice a man can be. How nice is that? Real good. One of these days, I'm gonna show you how nice a man can be. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. Our show today is The Mask of the Public Good on how the institution of higher learning is often a bully and a thief in our midst. How can we question the cultural value of the university, which elevates the quality of life of town residents? A discussion of a 2019 Indiana public media story on Indiana University serves as an example. I hear my phone ringing. I did too. Sound like a long distant call. We begin to unravel the idea of, you know, the uh, the pure public good, <laughs> like the university mm-hmm. serving a particular good. And and again, in that article you mentioned, that's a 2019 article um, via, I think, the, the public media, Indiana public media, um, mm-hmm. where, you know, one of the things they talk about is the idea that a university is a good that brings tourism in, that elevates the culture of a town as well, right? And so, mm-hmm. you know, it's, mm-hmm. it sort of fits right into this idea that the university is culturally 
uh, lifting up a, a community to a different space, you know, and it becomes that kind of uh, ideology of what a university does. While you're talking about the nuts and bolts of how the universities take property, take land, uh, make money, uh, don't support uh, local systems, don't support the, the city systems like uh, like you mentioned already, don't pay into schools, etc., because of this nonprofit status um, of the university. One thing that happens here too, and that I wasn't really quite clear on, or, or maybe I'm, I'm not understanding it very well, is how that nonprofit status is put to use in the other businesses that mm-hmm. then become parasitic off the university's nonprofit status in some ways, right? Mm-hmm. Like they also right. don't get taxed on. That's right. So that, that was confusing to me. Like, I don't understand why anyone would allow that to be the case, just to have the constant corporate presence within the university not being taxed on what they do also because they're being operated within the university. That's a great point. So real quickly, let me just, let me just acknowledge that the article is right. And, and people, people make this argument to me all the time. Well, what would New Haven be without Yale? What would Bloomington be without IU? What would, you know, uh, Gainesville be without the University of Florida? So I want to acknowledge that, yes, colleges and universities bring ideas and people together and they generate new innovations and jobs. But my point in in doing this research and what I saw all over the country is that there was a cost Mm -hmm. to this for those living in the shadows of these ivory towers. Um, Campus expansions also raise housing costs and displace residents in the neighborhoods that largely surround campus. Campus police forces surveil and profile the same residents, usually of color, um, and are rarely held to public account. And then higher education's broad control over labor, not high-end faculty labor, but low-wage labor, can lower wage ceilings and suppress collective bargaining efforts. And so I want to be clear about that. And so schools, actually, because they have this such as great, this great impact on our cities and towns, they are setting the housing costs and land values, the wage ceilings, the healthcare standards, and the policing priorities for whole cities. And I'm sure, I spent time, I'm sure this is the case in Bloomington. And so in exchange for their, their, their impact, they have a non-public control. So even a public university, whereby they are a public entity, they're making decisions not for the entire public, they're making decisions for the university interest, but because it's a public university, they, they presume or suggest that what's good for them is good for the city. Right. And that's not always the case. And the clearest example of this has been with the rise of what's been called the knowledge economy. And so the knowledge economy here is where academic research is being used to create profitable um, commercial goods or patents in a range of fields from pharmaceutical industries and software products to military defense weaponry to uh, hotels. And so what's happening with this is we have what I'm calling a public good paradox. So precisely because college and universities are, um, in, are presumed to offer an inherent public good, and this is most clearly marked by their 501c3 property tax exempt status, uh, their land becomes a financial shelter when they participate in what are called public-private partnerships. Mm-hmm. So you can have university land that's held by the board of trustees or the board of regents, depending on the state, at a public university. They engage, the university engages with the partnership with private entities. And then when these private entities sit on university land, what goes on there, that land becomes tax exempt. They pass on, the university passes on the financial shelter of their nonprofit public good status onto these private entities. So if a pharmaceutical company sits at a university um, or if they conduct their research and development 
um, with a university. It's presumed that that's educational work. But what's happening is that the work that's being done there would normally have to be done at a private research facility and we had to be paid regular wages. But when it's done on a university campus, it's done by graduate students who are paid below standard wages, a, a stipend. The overhead is less because the land is tax exempt. Then when the university sells that uh, research and development in the form of intellectual property on the private market, millions of dollars can come back to the university in the form of royalties. So this becomes a money-making entity, both for the university and for the private partner, while the graduate student workers and the city get the short end. <laughs> right, right. And virtually get nothing. Right. right. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is Devarian Baldwin, professor of American Studies at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, and author of In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities, a book which exposes the myth of the university as a public good by revealing how much of its operations actually serve private and corporate wealth accumulation to the detriment of their host communities. Um, and there was a case in 2016 um, where the historically black neighborhood of Witherspoon Jackson um, realized their property taxes were going up and they couldn't understand why. And then after some research, they realized that they were sitting next to Princeton University tax exempt buildings where research had generated millions in commercial royalties um, from work that they were doing with Eli Lilly. They filed a lawsuit and won an $18 million um, um, settlement. And that's rare, though, because they did the forensic work, the financial forensic work. Um, but one plaintiff in that case was so disgusted with what he found out that he dismissed Princeton as a hedge fund that conducts classes. <laughs> right, right. Teaching classes has become what my good um, colleague calls a, a side hustle yeah. um, at schools. When we have these discussions, we're looking at university budgets. We might be talking about the tuition, the classes, but we're not talking about the technology transfer departments. We're not talking about the um, research and development. We're not talking about the uh, development office. We're not talking about the university foundation. We're not talking about the real estate office. And we're not talking about the police departments. So all these other areas, these profit generating areas aren't even discussed when we're having these conversations about austerity measures. Right. And so it's, 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 it's almost comical. Um, and, and this is even more appalling when we consider that most a number of universities with multi-million, some multi-billion dollar endowments receive millions of dollars in the, from the CARES Act during the pandemic right. and are still calling for austerity measures. Well, you know what you're doing? You're talking about um, an entity that has a lot of power, a lot of money, um, a lot of uh, weight in, in wherever it sits that is not at all interested in doing anything other than supporting its own, you know, reproduction of, of itself, its own, its own money, its own wealth for, for, you know, uh, the board, for shareholders within the, the corporate system it's created as well. So it has no interest in community. It has no interest in supporting any of the, the human things that happen within its borders even. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, your, your book entirely points out that the, these aren't community-minded entities in terms of its people. Um, mm -hmm. and not, not, let alone the people around it that don't actually go, go there or, you know, mm -hmm. have anything to do with it, but even its own people. Right. right. So it's, right. it's, I mean, it's a key issue to say we could have, uh, these, these enormous entities that have so much power and so much capacity to right. help, to teach, to, you know, to move us in certain directions that are literally just 
like sucking the the money and air and life out of communities, out of people. And let me and I also want to be clear that all universities are not created equally. So there are major flagship public universities and of course very wealthy private universities that are doing all the things they're talking about. But during the pandemic, we saw, for example, historically black colleges and universities mm. taking the money they received from CARES Act and um, just clearing out the debt of their students. Mm. So doing better, doing different. We see community colleges um, all throughout the country that are trying to service the health insecurity and the food insecurity of the students and their families that attend these these colleges. So there are examples of schools doing, at least in small versions, doing the right thing. The universities and colleges that have significant amounts of wealth, um, we just see them over and over again behaving badly. And so this this thing I'm talking about called the public good paradox, it works in two, at two levels. On one level, it serves as a financial shelter. But on the other level, it serves as kind of a perception shelter right. because we presume that higher education is driven by a higher function and purpose. So we don't even question right. what goes on behind campus walls. There was, became a chink in the armor in the summer of 2020, because when there were all of these conversations around police brutality and police corruption and police violence more broadly, um, students and residents, in particularly in college areas, began to say, wait a minute, what people are talking about on the national level, we're actually experiencing, but the police we're talking about are not city police, it's campus police. Right. And so people began to investigate, wait a minute, what's our relationship? We're talking about abolition, reform, campus police aren't even on the table. And then as they began to, to organize and investigate, they're saying, well, wait a minute, this Campus police are not even here to offer public safety. And they delved further into it and saw how campus police actually are these frontline forces to protect and manage all of this wealth and power held in the capacity of higher education. Right. And so people began to, so I've been working on this work for 15 years, mm. but as I was finishing it up, the, the public imagination and public scrutiny began to catch up with my work in the sense that the summer saw people using the policing situation as a window into investigating the larger power capacity of higher education, especially those entities that sit um, directly in their environs. Hey, listen, that's all they're doing. It's time for another break. This is Got My Mojo Working, performed by Muddy Waters and the Rolling Stones in 1981, live at the Checkerboard Lounge in Bronzeville in Chicago. More with DeVarian Baldwin when Interchange returns on WFHB. Got my mojo working, but just don't work on you. Got my mojo working, but just don't work on you. I need help serve the hands on Don't know what to do. I'm going down on the air just to get them mojo hands Got 
Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our guest is DeVarian Baldwin, professor of American studies at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, and author of In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, a book that takes to task his own employer. We begin this segment focusing on the way campus police minimize and obscure criminal activity on campus. It was hard for me to, again, to try to understand, you know, the makeup of residents and citizens and who's responsible to what and who governs what and trying to think of this with, again, within this, you know, this paradigm of what the university is, where are students, you know, who are they? What are, what are, what's their status as citizens? What's their status as residents? What, Mm -hmm. what is a resident's status or what is a citizen's status, status within the college campus? You know, who, who governs the citizen of the city or town when the citizen is on a campus. If it's a public campus, mm-hmm. it's different than when it's on a private campus. Who's in charge of what? When you talk about police, it's it's reading your book on University of Chicago policing, University of Cincinnati policing, the attempt to mm-hmm. sort of replicate that at Johns Hopkins University. In IU, I think it's about got about half the number of police on the IU campus that are, you know, campus police versus the city police. Their jurisdiction is broader, I think, than campus, uh, as you mm-hmm. point out too, in, in multiple ways. Uh, mm-hmm. They have the same ability to arrest you if, you know, right. uh, so where are our protections as citizens? You know, they, it's really a strange, like legal space the campus you know uh, it's it's, right yeah it's just hard to get your head around sometimes it's a great point and so even when police are public they they work for a public or private entity they primarily are driven by or directed by serving the interests of the university Hmm. and so it's let's let's just offer some some facts most schools have campus police about 75 percent that includes public or private nearly all carry guns and about nine in 10 have arrest and patrol jurisdictions beyond the campus. And so even when a university or college is not yet expanding their physical footprint out into a neighborhood or a community, with police having this kind of power, it's what I call extraterritorial jurisdiction. They are actually laying the groundwork for what usually follows is campus is a physical footprint expansion on the part of the university. Because by policing based on the interests of the university, they are dictating the behaviors, the actions, the abilities of residents to move within their own communities in a way that's generated or driven by setting the ground for that space to be seeded by the campus. So the myth is that Campus police is serving a public good service, that they are agents of student or when they move beyond this community safety. But when we look at the actual function of campus police, their primary function, let's look at the, the biggest crimes on campuses. Two of the biggest crimes are, are sexual violence and substance abuse. Right. Campus police do a horrible job of policing that. Some people would say it's because of capacity. I would say my research shows it's, it's, a, it's a matter of orientation. Because if campus police policed those prevalent crimes at an appropriate rate, who in their right mind, if you're a university president, wants to highlight that your campus is full of criminals, (laughs) especially when it's primarily white on white crime. 
especially when these are predominantly white schools that are existing in, in predominantly black or brown or working class poor white neighborhoods. This undermines the university brand. So when primarily in my book, I look at primarily um, uh, predominantly white schools in poor black and brown neighborhoods, when campus police do expand into communities, they serve a, a, a similar branding function that as your students go off to off-campus housing, as they you know buy food in the neighborhoods, they will be safe. Well, in both cases, when it comes to the actual crimes on campus and when it comes to the function of campus police in communities where public safety actually looks like housing and food security, trauma and healthcare, not just simply more armed forces, campus police don't function appropriately on either grounds, on either fronts. I argue they purposely don't police on campuses and they are more of a symbolic, they serve more of a symbolic function out in the communities. And so when Johns Hopkins was attempting to build their, their police force, expand and create a private police force in the middle of Baltimore, um, Senator Mary Washington described it as a Vatican city in the middle of Baltimore, because this would be a campus police force that would only be beholden to the university president and the board of trustees. And there's another important point to know that even if you aren't not, even if you don't live with near a, a public university, private universities are not even subject to Freedom of Information Act laws. Mm-hmm. So they're not, they don't, they're not even required to let the public know what they're doing, the police stops they're making. But then public universities, even though they are subject to Freedom of Information Act laws, they primarily police in a way that serves the needs and interests of the campus. So whether it's a public or private university, you have a police force with public authority and very little public accountability. This is dangerous. Yeah, to, to say the least. Well, um, yeah, you know, you only get the sense that the, the campus police are there to keep people out of the of the gated city. And to also to to quiet the crimes that actually happen on campus. Right. Ask a woman, right. you know, what does it mean, right, to go through the sexual violence um, um, procedures at a university? Um, it can. I've just heard horror stories right. about what happens, um, both at the administrative level and at the policing level. Um, at my own campus, there, there for years, there was simply campus police's function was to, in the cover of night, to take students that had overdosed, um, you know, on campus and get them to the hospital without there being much public attention. Right, like fixers. Right. Yeah. That's right. I talked to campus officers when they when they find substances are leaving dorms, they don't confiscate those substances. They don't transfer or hand over the, the criminals, let's be honest, the criminals over to the to the um, city police. Their job is to protect the students. What students told me is that we're seeing a two-tier policing system emerging where um, students who and residents who commit the same infraction, um, the student is sent to the dean of students while the resident goes through the criminal justice system. Right. And this, you know, disparity becomes even more glaring when you have an elite, wealthy, uh, white, private university in the middle of a poor black or brown neighborhood where most of the residents are going to be arrested, we'll have that profile. But it also happens in college towns as well. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is Devarian Baldwin, professor of American Studies at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, and author of In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities, a book which exposes the myth of the university as a public good by revealing how much of its operations actually serve private and corporate wealth accumulation to the detriment of their host communities. 
Well, so you mentioned uh, your employer, Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, and it plays an important role in your book uh, as much to kind of give us a sense of how uh, colleges kind of came to be sort of on the, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, outskirts of cities playing a role in an ideology there as well. So why is Trinity a good case study for your book? I mean, has Trinity plundered Hartford? Trinity is, you know, it will celebrate its bicentennial um, in two years. So it, it was founded in 1823. Uh, mm. And so at that, so it's, it's it's considered, you know, one of what's called a little ivy in New England. Um, so these small liberal arts colleges that were primarily finishing schools for those who already had jobs waiting for them, their fathers or mothers had a, probably fathers had a financial house or a corporate entity or a trading firm, and they went to college not to receive or to acquire networks, but simply to reinforce the networks they already had. It started as a men's only school, which is not surprising in that mm-hmm. time period and the kind of school that it is. Right. And it still is in a very elite, a very elite liberal arts college. Throughout its history, it's had an ambivalent relationship with the with the city that surrounds it. Um, like um, Harlem in New York and Columbia, Hyde Park in Chicago, Southside, New York, Chicago, the Frog Hollow neighborhood of Trinity at one point was on the outskirts of town. As these cities grew, it be, it became uh, you know a central piece in the middle of the city. And so, because of this, it's changed its relationships with what was a changing city. A public street, you know, ran through the middle of the campus. Um, there was a bit of violence that took place, and the college had the power to close the street off, to just privatize the street, to close it off. In other parts of the schools history. It's used the language of community engagement and community development as a way to expand into the city for its own interests. Real estate investments becomes expressed as community engagement. Policing jurisdiction gets expressed as community engagement. There's a police outpost right on the outside of the campus that's considered community engagement. But the function of these so-called acts of community engagement are actually in primarily to serve the college interest. We we just built a couple of years ago a downtown campus um, in the middle of the financial district. It's been positioned or presented as an expression of community engagement, but what it actually is in, in, in large part is a way to put students in direct proximity to the state house, which is in Hartford, and with financial or um, um, internships in the financial district. There are many, so many other communities in Hartford that could have benefited from a downtown Trinity College campus, but it's it's strategically positioned in a way to benefit the students and engage in partnerships with private entities in the downtown financial district. Right. right. So these are the kind of things it's engaging in. And these are the kind of things I talk about in the book, um, that community engagement is a real thing. It could be robust. It could be transformative. Um, but don't engage in practices that are primarily for the university or college interest and call it community engagement. Yeah, it's a it's obviously a particular community it's engaging with. But I did <laughs> want to ask you about the 1980 uh, Bayh Dole Act, oh, because, yeah. uh, obviously because of Indiana Senator Birch Bayh being one part of that uh, named in that act. But mm-hmm. uh, it's such like it's such a touch point for the the neoliberal university, um, right. you know, and all the things you've been talking about, you know, how the the university begins to profit off the research that students do, and entities outside the university come into the university to profit off of that research as 
well. And I was just looking at the Indiana University webpage, and it notes uh, in particular the IU uh, Research and Technology Corporation, a not-for-profit agency that assists <laughs> IU faculty and researchers in realizing the commercial potential of their discoveries. Since 1997, university clients have been responsible for more than 1,800 inventions, nearly 500 patents, and 38 startup companies. In fiscal year 2016, IURTC was issued 53 U.S. patents and 112 global patents. And that's, you know, that's a function of that Baidol opening, right? That's right. Yeah. So the Baidol Act is very interesting because before that, and first of all, we should state that almost all of the research that goes on on campuses is primarily funded by the federal government through grants. Before 1980, it was presumed, which made sense, that because this research is being funded or underwritten by federal public money, therefore the discoveries and findings of that research had to be held in the public domain. It cannot be privatized. It cannot be turned into um, for-profit measures. It had to be made made open and available to the public. Mm -hmm. A group of universities got together in the 1970s and lobbied to change that relationship. And that ultimately became the Bayh-Dole Act, as you mentioned, Senator Bayh from Indiana um, was was a name legislature on that act. Um, that said, now you can universities can take the free and public research that they produce and privatize it, can convert it into intellectual property and then sell it onto the re- onto the market, the private market, to the highest bidder and receive money back in the form of royalties. So again, just to be clear, this is public money that is being converted into private wealth for universities and private companies. That was the foundation for what I call the knowledge economy. Universities have always had tax exemption on their their land, property tax exemption on their land. But now after the Baidol Act, this isn't just land for dormitories. This is land for profit-generating laboratories that is powerful for this knowledge economy that I'm talking about. And so another component of this is in these laboratories and these workshops, Individual, these entities are engaging in exploitative labor. Who's doing most of the work? There might be a faculty, um, a principal researcher that's employing a number of graduate student researchers and workers that the graduate students would normally go out with a bachelor's degree, would go out and work, say, for Bombardier, Google, um, you know, what have you. Um, and they will receive, say, $60,000 to start off with a bachelor's degree in engineering, computer science, uh, you know, bio, biotechnology, uh, biochemistry, what have you. They come to IU or whatever school and they get a stipend for maybe $30,000. If that student worked in the, in the private sector, over time, they do a couple of discoveries and research, they would get $100,000, $120,000 as research, you know, for promotion. But that student, three or four or five years later, they're still getting that $20,000 or $30,000 stipend because they are considered to be an apprentice. So the millions of dollars that might be produced by this research, the workers, the primary workers on this, don't receive any money for it. And then if a patent is created, the school could get between 50 and 60% of that patent just because the research is done on their campus. This arrangement is great for the school. It's great for the private entity because they can write off all of the all the work that they all the money they the donations they make to the school as as a write off in the name of educational purposes. So they get cheap research and development. It's time for our final break and one more from Mick and the boys and Muddy Waters. This is Clouds in My Heart. Again, this was live at the Checkerboard Lounge in Chicago in 1981. 
Stay with us as we examine the extensive influence of the flagship public university across the state. Don't look out at the weather. People, I believe it's gonna rain. I believe it's gonna rain Check up on my baby Don't you hear how the thunder roar? Oh, the light of a flight ship. Don't you hear how the thunder roar? All alone by myself Can't you see how the wind is blowing Look out key Welcome back to Interchange For our final segment on how universities are plundering our cities We turn to IUPUI in Indianapolis And ask Bloomington citizens and IU students are you aware of the way the university does its business across the state? In Indianapolis, this means destroying black community history. So it really has just become an arm of the financial um, corporate structure. Large, uh, obviously public universities like Indiana University can't do that for everyone. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, there, there are particular uh, departments that do that, uh, and there are other departments, humanities in particular, that that right, don't that do that. Right. So, <laughs> so uh, right. and, they're, and they're actually being phased out, you right, know, in some right, ways right, because right. they because they don't do that. Well, one one, um, one good way to, to to look at it uh, here, at least, and probably everywhere too, is just to look at the salaries of faculty to sort of give you a sense of the the valuation of certain departments. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you know. That's right. And so what we're finding is some people are calling it the corporatization of the university. Oh, sure. But I'm glad you bring up IU because I. Think think that colleges and especially um, big land grant public universities um, that are existing in college towns, they perceive that they're not touched by these conversations that I'm having. Um, but it's funny because many of these public schools that are in college towns like Bloomington or in my book, Tempe, Arizona, or in Gainesville, or where I, I grew up in Wisconsin, so Madison, Wisconsin, they seem to be, be perceived as being untouched. But where we find direct relationships is number one, the tax phenomena in college towns is real. The labor issues in terms of who works on campus is real. The impact and the influence that most of the, the individuals that go into governance usually are alumni of these schools and right. many times work in the interest of the schools when they make decisions. Mm -hmm. But another area that's rarely untapped is that college town universities are flagships, which means they're connected to and control 
um, other campuses in urban areas. Mm-hmm. And so in my book, I talk about um, Arizona State building a downtown campus in F- Phoenix, Arizona. But we can see a similar phenomenon going on with the IUPUI campus in Indianapolis. Right which is controlled by Indiana University in Bloomington. And so right now there's a major controversy going on because IUPUI is situated right in the middle of the historically black Indiana Avenue district, which got demolished in the 1960s and 70s, just destroyed because of urban renewal, making way for highways and roads and just demolishing areas. When that happened, IUPUI took advantage of the demolition and built parking lots across the street from what had been a vibrant Black commercial entertainment district. So today, right now, there is a developer by the name of Buckingham, which is trying to build a 70, trying to demolish what's left of the Black historic district. Um, if we know if we know that any Black history, Madam C.J. Walker was one of the first Black millionaires, Black woman millionaire who was in the beauty industry um, in the 1920s and 30s. Um, so that her theater, because she's from Indianapolis, her theater still sits there. They want to demolish the, the last remnants of that Indiana district and build a $70 million apartment complex that will serve the needs of students in the IUPUI campus. Now, if we take, if we take a, a broad view, what's the primary function of the IUPUI campus? It's an urban research and academic health sciences campus. And to the northwest of that campus is what the city has targeted as Tech Point a burgeoning technology development um, community, a hub. Mm -hmm. So if we take the broad view, this perfectly fits within my framework and understanding of the knowledge economy. These partnerships between campuses and the health sciences and tech industries that can generate research and development on the part of student workers and researchers that can be brought to market and bring money to the university and to these private entities at the cost of holding back, withholding taxes from the neighborhoods. And in this case, demolishing historic neighborhoods to engage in that kind of profit-making enterprise. And so there are parking lots that IUPUI holds right across the street from this district. Those parking lots could be ceded to the historic Black neighborhood so that either the uh, housing could be built on the parking lots, the parking lots could be used to bolster and revitalize that neighborhood in the interest of the residents. But again, What is the flagship campus, Bloomington, saying about the dealings of its urban campus in Indianapolis? This conversation must be placed on the radar because what's happening is basically students that are at Indiana University in Bloomington, this kind of work is being done in their name. And this is the kind of wealth generation and economic development at the cost of residents that's happening within these, what I'm calling universities. And we don't know about these things in our backyard frequently. Obviously, students in particular at a place like Indiana University would likely have no idea about Indianapolis history mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. or anything's happening at IUPUI in general, unless they have some some particular departmental reason to, to take a class uh, there as well. You make a great point. Students that are at Bloomington don't know what's happening in Indianapolis. Right. But the work that I'm doing here, if people are able to just simply glean the overall framework, it gives them a different outlook. A different sense of understanding their place within a burgeoning and dominating economy. Who are we and what's our relationship to our environments? Um, How can the university and by extension, individual students become better neighbors, become better situated? That, That they're not just these floating entities that come into a space for four years or maybe five or six years and leave. This is not simply um a, a training ground for the real world. These campuses, your presence, you're a part of this real world 
multi-million dollar economy. And you should know about that. What if, if we go to school for anything and, and not just to get a job, it's to understand our, our sense of our citizenship, our place, our situatedness. And, and we should be lifelong learners and we should be getting, this is the kind of education I feel that students should be getting. What's your relationship to the environments in which you sit? How can you make them better? How can you improve them? How can you better connect to your surroundings? How can you be a better citizen in your community and in your world? This is a grounded material example a starting point for students to begin that hopefully lifelong process. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is Devarian Baldwin, professor of American Studies at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, and author of In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities, a book which exposes the myth of the university as a public good by revealing how much of its operations actually serve private and corporate wealth accumulation to the detriment of their host communities. The, one of the things that, that, that uh, obviously is glaring about it is that it's uh, exactly the opposite of what the university is doing for mm-hmm. its students. It'd be right. hard to imagine this, you know, getting an education. You'd have to literally not be, um, you know, you'd have to be extra student, I suppose. You know, you'd have right. to be outside the university's own designs and understand how to how to maneuver around in that space, you know. Um, hard to ask. But the thing, the irony yeah. is that you, you are touched by all these Oh, things. sure. I know. When I'm you, not. When I'm, you get in the yeah. cafeteria right. line right. Right. and you receive, when you receive uh, food from that worker, you're connected to those communities. Right. Right. When you live in off-campus housing, you, you, you're connected to that community. When you turn on your Wi-Fi, you're connected to, that, to these communities. And and it's just like you said, it's just about being aware, being right. better, being more embedded in the actual networks and connections that make your existence possible. Right. I would hope that we would all want to do. Well, you know, one of the things that you pointed out there and which is important to, to note here, uh, too, is is this sort of floating bodies, you know, that come in and go mm-hmm. out of, of campuses in particular. And it seems a, a beautiful design for a lack of political awareness, a lack of embeddedness, mm-hmm. a lack of, of centeredness in your space. You're, you're a guest and a bad one, generally, uh, right. in a community. Uh, and also take on that as a freedom. You know, mm. you don't. You are not responsible to the community, and you can be That's as right. free as you want to be. You can exploit what you want to exploit. You can, you That's know, party right. as you want to party. You cannot do things that you need. You know, all these things happen in this environment that absolutely derail the politicization mm-hmm. of of, an, of a person. You know, they are they are they are neoliberal individualists. I suppose. That's right. right? So. And when I get the, the the comments like you know. Oh, New Haven would be, uh, you know, a, a hole of a place or in Bloomington right. would, would fall if Indiana wasn't there. You know, I agree they make wonderful contributions to these cities and towns, but we have to understand that the very things that we celebrate about those entities, it comes yeah. from extracting wealth and labor from the cities in which they sit. It doesn't come from nowhere, right? The taxes that they don't pay, right. the low wages that they do pay. That's where their prosperity comes from. And so let's be honest about that and have more just and humane relationships. Most residents, they don't want college universities to go. They just want a new orientation. They want an abolition of the current conditions. Right. They they want to they want to be more embedded. That when I was in, in Phoenix and they were building a downtown campus, residents were promised access because it's a public school. But then when the campus got built, the argument was that, well, the city leases the campus to the university. 
And therefore, the university can dictate who can and can't be often on that campus. But the residents pay for that campus as they pay for the campus in Bloomington. And there have been peace points in history where students and activists have advocated for turning the campus, their campuses into a commons, that everyone should be a member of the campuses you know, that are in these communities, mm-hmm. that they shouldn't just have a, a, a discount at the gym, but and they shouldn't just be able to have access to the lectures, but they should have access to the lecture halls and the cafeterias and the common spaces. Now, I'm not saying they should have access to the dorms, don't get me wrong, but the common areas should serve as an extension of the city. What kind of relationship could a student have if they had to rub elbows and shoulders with residents? And what kind of existence would residents have if they were interacting with students and the resources that campuses offer because they're helping to pay for them? What a different kind of community we could have if these things are happening. And in fact, a young woman I met in Buffalo, um, she was a nurse and she um, was living in a neighborhood adjacent to the University of Buffalo's medical campus that was down in downtown Buffalo. But she began to see that the properties that were nearby the campus were going up because developers were speculating that students would still be would soon come down. So they ratcheted their prices above the means of the African-American residents in the historic neighborhood that sat adjacent to the campus. She saw that happening and she became an activist because some of her family members lived in that neighborhood. And because she was a nurse at the medical campus that was there, she also lived in that neighborhood. And so she became a resident of that neighborhood and began to engage in activism, began to advocate for what she called community land trust that would allow residents to control the land in the neighborhoods and prevent um, high rent speculation. Um, she got more and more. Now that nurse, that nurse's name is India Walton, and she's about to become the next mayor of Buffalo. And so my point here is that the relationships that you engage in with these colleges and universities are real. They're not for the future. They're happening right now. They position you to understand your environments in a greater way. They encourage you to be more politically involved, more civically involved, to engage in large moral questions about what's right and wrong. What does it mean to be a neighbor? What does it mean to be responsible? And therefore, the, the issues you struggle with on campuses actually are touching whole cities, whereby someone like India Walton saw that the struggle she engaged in on the campus level actually impact the entire city. And so now she's about to be mayor of the city of Buffalo. That's our show. We'll close with a final track from Muddy Waters and the Rolling Stones, who were live at the Checkerboard Lounge, recorded in 1981. This is You Don't Have to Go. But, of course, you do. Again, DeVarian Baldwin's book is In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, and it's published by Bold Type Books. Next week, we'll trace the history of just how it is the university came to be the way Baldwin reveals it is. We won't start at the beginning, but around the 12th century, when already there was dissension between town and gown. Bloomington City Council member and master geographer Steve Volan is our guest. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Cade Young is executive producer. This is Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHB. 
Thanks for listening. You don't treat me nothing like you used to do. Well, I gave you all of my money, let you go downtown. You come back in the evening, calling me all kind of clown. Oh, baby, you don't have to go.